All right, as we head into warmer weather across much of the U.S. in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep is by checking out Bull and Branch Bedding and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at Mo News. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bull and Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you. And it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MONEWS for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. It is Thursday, October 6th. I'm Moshe Wanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. There are a number of headlines we're watching as we get closer to yet another weekend. It is Thursday. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And here's what you need to know. The world's leading oil producers and their friends, they go by OPEC Plus, voted to cut oil production on Wednesday. Their plan is to get prices going back up, which is not good for you and me. We got a new report yesterday from the FBI on crime rates in the U.S. I will break down some of the numbers, but there were some blank spots in the FBI report. President Biden and Florida Governor DeSantis played nice for the day yesterday as the president was down in Florida visiting victims of the hurricane. The big question is how long will they be singing Kumbaya? Actor Alec Baldwin settled with the family of the woman he accidentally shot and killed on a movie set last October. We'll tell you what it means for his criminal case. And I'll end with how a new law in Europe could simplify things for all Apple iPhone users. You know, all the various cables, they keep updating, changing, forcing us to get new ones. Well, Europe has had enough with it. And so they are putting some new mandates on Apple and it could have an impact on users here in the U.S. A reminder as we get started to follow or subscribe to the show on whatever app you're listening to us on, and please leave a review. Just take a moment and leave a review for the show. It helps us continue to grow the show and move up the ranks on all the charts. Let's start with that oil news and what it means for our gas prices. Saudi Arabia and Russia acting as leaders of the OPEC plus energy cartel, this is about two dozen countries, agreed on Wednesday to their first significant large production cut In more than two years, this is a bid to raise prices. Saudi Arabia, Russia are among the countries that really depend on oil revenues. And as the price of oil has gone down, it's been good for us consumers, but not so good for the budgets of these countries. And so what they decided to do yesterday was cut production, thereby making less oil available to the marketplace and getting the price back up. Leaders across Europe and President Biden have all been urging instead for more oil production in recent months. Their hope is to ease gasoline prices and to be punishing Russia for its aggression in Ukraine. Biden has gone so far as to have been actively personally making a bid to the uh, leaders of Saudi Arabia. You might remember the fist bump diplomacy, if you will, a few months ago when Biden was in Saudi Arabia asking them, really begging them, to increase production, to decrease gas prices, and it appears to really be a slap in the face of Biden and the West with his decision on Wednesday. 
The White House put out a statement, not very happy. It said, quote, the president is disappointed by the short-sighted decision by OPEC Plus to cut production quotas while the global economy is dealing with the continued negative impact of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The move by the two dozen or so OPEC Plus countries cuts 2 million barrels a day. It represents about 2% of overall global oil production. And their move had the desired result. Immediately, the price of oil began to rise by about 1.5% on Wednesday. A reminder here that the price of crude oil impacts a number of things, not just uh, the gas you put in your car, but everything from paint thinner to jet fuel to diesel all comes from crude oil. In response to this, the U.S. Energy Department said the White House will be ordering the release of 10 million additional barrels. This is from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is a separate reserve the U.S. has for emergency cases. This is expected to come in November. But a little context here when you hear about 10 million barrels. The U.S. typically on an average day goes through 20 million barrels. That's how much we in the U.S. consume every day. So when you really put this all together, the 10 million barrels the White House will be releasing from the reserve in November amounts to about 12 hours of our needs in an average day. What you need to know here is that this is a win for a number of the oil producing countries, as well as Vladimir Putin, uh, who's been working uh, the Saudis in this case to try to get prices up. Russia is really needing right now uh, more oil revenues to help feed its economy and, of course, feed its war. Uh, continued war in Ukraine. Okay, I want to return home for a second for this next story. The FBI released its annual crime data on Wednesday, and it suggests a slight increase in homicides in the U.S. for 2021. There were some concerning stats here, but a warning that officials say the statistics are incomplete. They exclude some major cities because of a transition the FBI is making to a new data tracking system. So I'll read you some of these numbers, but keep in mind that certain cities are still working to transition and didn't report their data. That includes New York, L.A., Philadelphia, San Francisco, and Phoenix, some biggies there. But this is what we know as far as the FBI's data for the year 2021. Homicides increased by about 4% last year over 2020, and that comes as there was a 30% surge in 2020 over 2019. So we saw a continued uptick, and that's without some of these major cities being counted. So the number continues to increase, but it still remains for now below the historic highs of the early 90s. Drilling down here on the numbers for 2021, specifically when it comes to murders, they counted, the FBI did, 22,900 murders in 2021. That's up from 22,000 in 2020. The FBI did say, though, that overall violent crime, which is a larger category, they said was down 1% because the robbery rate declined by about 9% and the property crime rate of people stealing things dropped by 4.5%. If you're looking for specifics, there were about 1.32 million violent crimes in 2020 and it went down to 1.31 million violent crimes in 2021. However, experts are cautioning that there is a margin of error in the FBI's new estimates. So that could mean that given how close these numbers are, it is difficult to draw meaningful conclusions, but I wanted to pass them along to you anyway, because I'm sure you're going to be seeing headlines about this spun in various directions. So keep in mind that there's a lot of still missing details in these numbers. Only 52%, 52% of U.S. law enforcement agencies submitted their full 2021 data that only covers about two-thirds of America. So we're still missing uh, 48% of 2021 data, which uh, covers about one-third of Americans, more than 100 million Americans. And it's missing right now numbers from New York, L.A., San Francisco, Philly, and Phoenix, they're still working on getting things to a new database. It's called the National Incident-Based Reporting System, called NIBRS. Uh, apparently, the goal here, ultimately, when everybody transitions to it, is to get more granular and better quality data 
For now, though, you're seeing these headlines, and I just want everyone here to know that if you read between the lines, which is what we try to do for you here, we're missing about, again, 50% of uh, police departments across the country, accounting for a third of America, including major cities. So you will be seeing uh, these numbers circulated everywhere. I'm sure they're going to be being used by politicians on both sides to try to make various arguments. Homicides are up. Violent crime is down. You can imagine Republicans will be focused on homicides being up. Democrats will be focused on the violent crime number. But there's a lot of numbers missing here. And I'll keep you up to date when we finally hear from some of these bigger cities and their numbers from last year. Okay, another report card I was looking at yesterday looks at the state of the housing market. And this one uh, is updated weekly, and we can trust these numbers. It shows that mortgage rates are continuing their upward climb, reaching levels we have not seen in 16 years since 2006, while mortgage applications for house purchases we're down 37% last week compared with a year ago. So rates are up, applications are down. This is all part of the intended effect of the Fed, raising interest rates, trying to decrease the amount of money supply, slow things down and bring down inflation. So these rising interest rates and bond yields are driving up the cost of borrowing and that has put home buying out of the reach of more Americans who are finally looking to buy their home after the market has been nuts for the past two years. And it means that we're gonna see some prices starting to drop. The average 30-year fixed rate mortgage hit 6.75% last week. We're almost at 7% uh, here, folks. It's the highest point, as I said, in 16 years. And just looking at that 6.75% 30-year uh, from last week, that means that rates have now more than doubled just over the last year alone. At the same time, mortgage applications for new buyers plunged 13% from a week earlier. The Hurricane Ian could have had something to do with this number slightly as it negatively impacted the activity in Florida, which has been a huge real estate market. One other number, experts are tracking the adjustable rate mortgages increased to about 12% of total applications last week. But I wanna leave you here with one piece of good news. Just because the housing market is slowing down and you're seeing all these scary headlines, it does not mean we need to brace for a total freefall a la 2008, 2009. Since housing inventory is still very low. All the major banks, major experts who watch the market say this is not 2008 all over again. We don't anticipate a housing market or credit market crash at all. This is really just a byproduct of the interest rates going up due to what the Fed is doing and sort of the market just trying to come in from a landing from what has been a really insane 24-month cycle. Okay, I mentioned Hurricane Ian just a moment ago. It has been eight days since that mega storm hit Florida. And in perhaps one of the most surreal press conferences of the year, President Biden was down in Florida yesterday with his arch political nemesis, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and the two of them really played nicely for the day. They emphasized before cameras that they were putting their politics aside to deal with the disaster and care for Americans who have been left behind by Hurricane Ian. We've now seen the death toll rise to anywhere between 110 to 120, depending on news reports, though, unfortunately, uh, first responders are very concerned that this number will go up significantly as they continue to go house by house and look for bodies of the missing. But back to this press conference for a second, because it was pretty remarkable. And we could be looking at the two people who go up for president in 2024. Ron DeSantis is looking very seriously at running for president. We saw him alongside President Biden, who is very serious about potentially running for re-election here. So the sight of the two of them next to each other is probably something we should get used to, but we definitely should not expect for them to be this friendly in the future. Biden on Wednesday went as far as to praise DeSantis as remarkable for his leadership. Uh, DeSantis, for his part, said, I'm just thankful everyone is banded together. Mr. President, welcome to Florida. We appreciate working together. Really, it was a nice throwback, at least for a couple hours, to a time where Democrats and Republicans could actually uh, put their differences aside to actually help people. So we saw indications of that uh, in Florida on Wednesday as Biden uh, and the First Lady 
toured the damage alongside Ron DeSantis and his wife, Casey. This comes after a year and a half where Biden and DeSantis have really been going after one another, using uh, the other as a foil at times, attacking uh, the other's policies. Biden in the past has likened DeSantis to a schoolyard bully whose agenda has targeted vulnerable LGBTQ kids. DeSantis, for his part, has blamed Biden for rising inflation, saying he's destroying the country. Uh, he accused Biden earlier this year of withholding aid to tornado victims because President Biden, quote, hates Florida. Either way, we didn't see any signs of that animosity on Wednesday. And I will leave you with this. What many people are talking about, you've probably seen this clip potentially go viral on your social media feeds. Biden was caught in a hot mic moment. This is something pretty common for President Biden. Uh, after the press conference with DeSantis, he was walking around and uh, was still mic'd up. And apparently the media was still listening in on the uh, conversations. And so Biden, after the press conference, goes over to speak with the Fort Myers Beach mayor. His name is Ray Murphy. Uh, he drops an F-bomb here. Fair warning if you're listening with kids. Biden was caught uh, boasting to Murphy on this hot mic. Quote, that no one Fs with a Biden. But he used the full word. Murphy responded, yeah, you got that right. It was unclear, though, who Biden was talking about, what he was talking about. But it's not the first time that Biden has dropped an F-bomb on a hot mic after a press conference on national TV. You might remember the moment that uh, he had with President Obama when he was VP after Obama signed Obamacare, where Biden whispered to him, thinking it was just to him, turned out it was to the whole country, that this was a big effing deal. Okay, one entertainment headline I was watching on Wednesday was a settlement in the Alec Baldwin movie set shooting case. The family of Helena Hutchins, she's the cinematographer who was killed on the set of the movie Rust back last year, and Alec Baldwin have reached an undisclosed settlement in the wrongful death lawsuit they had filed against him. The family of Hutchins filed the lawsuit back in February against Baldwin, the film's production companies, and its producers, and other key members of the crew, alleging numerous industry standard violations in what led to the killing and death of Hutchins. According to these terms, now that this is settled, the production of the film is going to be able to resume in January with the movie's original director, Joel Souza, at the helm. Matthew Hutchins, that's Helena's widower, will actually now serve as an executive producer of the film. A quick recap here, since these events took place a year ago, like last October, on what actually took place. So Helena Hutchins had been setting up a shot at the Bonanza Creek Ranch. This is near Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's when Baldwin, who's the star of the film, was holding a vintage gun that fired. Now, Baldwin has claimed multiple times that he did not actually pull the trigger, even though he was holding the gun. However, the gun still somehow discharged, and it contained a live round, not a dummy or prop ammunition. That shot went through Helena's torso, then lodged in the shoulder of Joel Souza. He's the film's original director, who's going to be back to direct. She was airlifted to the hospital and unfortunately declared dead quickly thereafter. Souza recovered and now will be returning to the film set. So the family has now settled with the production company and Alec Baldwin, but that doesn't mean anything for a criminal investigation. Still pending is the final investigation report from the Santa Fe Sheriff's Office. Last month, New Mexico granted more funds to continue to investigate and pay for possible prosecutions connected to the shooting. The local district attorney who's investigating what took place last October says that as many as four people could still face charges for what took place on the movie set and that one of the possible defendants is Baldwin. In response to the settlement on Wednesday, the DA's office said that their investigation continues and it will have no impact on their investigation. So Alec is now settled with the family. The movie will go forth, including with Joel Souza, uh, who was shot and wounded but has recovered, and Helena's widower, who is uh, an EP, but ultimately this criminal investigation will continue and will continue to uh, stand by for details and updates there. 
Okay, we continue with more news to stay on top of the war in Ukraine. We're not going to forget about this as the war goes into an eighth month. Putin signed a decree yesterday claiming Russia now owns the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, that is the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The announcement came hours after the Russian leader signed laws annexing the Zaporizhia region. Earlier in the day, though, the uh, head of the Ukrainian Energy Agency, uh, this is Petro Kodin, uh, said he will continue to be running the Russian-held plant from the capital of Kiev. He called uh, Putin's decree worthless and absurd. Despite the size of the plant and continued pleas from the international community for Putin to let the Ukrainians just manage the largest nuclear power plant in all of Europe, this plant continues to be a focus of deep global concern. Both sides blame each other for bombings that have damaged parts of the plant and threatened to trigger a potential catastrophe. The head of the IAEA, that is the International Atomic Energy Agency, says that uh, the need for a nuclear safety and protection zone around the plant is now more urgent than ever. I told you last week that the Russian military kidnapped the plant's Ukrainian director. They released him earlier this week. The bottom line for now is the Ukrainian workers continue to operate the plant. It actually halted power generation last month uh, as a security measure given the bombing that was taking place around the camp. And by the way, the Ukrainian military continues to make progress in the south and is getting closer to Zaporizhia. So it's an interesting move by Putin here. And this is a uh, obviously a subject of concern, and we'll continue to watch what takes place around Zaporizhia. This has all come in recent days as Russia has made the move to annex four regions of Ukraine, four major regions that make up maybe 15% of Ukraine, about the size of Maryland. And on Wednesday, Putin officially signed uh, laws ratifying the annexation. He said, quote, I want the Kyiv authorities and their real masters in the West to hear me so that everyone remembers this. People living in Luhansk, Donetsk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia have become our citizens forever. The paperwork is pretty vague around the boundaries of the land Russia's claiming. Keep in mind, there's an ongoing war here, and Ukraine is now making progress into some of these territories. But again, Russia claims here that they've taken these regions, and they estimate that about 15% of Ukraine they now claim is theirs. We're continuing to monitor the progress the Ukrainian military is making. We're seeing Russian collapse uh, on some of the lines in the south. So I'll continue to monitor that on the Instagram feed over the course of the next few days. And also keep in mind that this annexation on the part of the Russians is not recognized by the vast majority of the world. Okay, back here at home, there's a couple of major tech stories we're following. The first is the on again, off again, on again, off again, on again, Elon Musk acquisition of the social media company, Twitter. The Wall Street Journal reported Wednesday night that as Elon decided he wanted to own Twitter again, 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 uh, in recent weeks, he apparently tried to negotiate a discount on his initial $44 billion deal. This is the deal he signed in April. He uh, went back on, he was sued over, and apparently in recent weeks, he was trying to get a discount because the Twitter stock has really plummeted since the spring. That makes the company worth less. But unfortunately for Elon, those talks broke down last week. So then on Monday of this week, Elon sent a two-sentence letter, pretty simple, saying, fine, I'm going to buy you guys for $44 billion, the same amount as April. Let's go. Now, this offer probably didn't come to Twitter out of the blue because court proceedings were set to start in the coming weeks uh, in regards to Twitter's lawsuit against Elon trying to force him to buy the company. Experts watching this say it is clear Elon wanted to avoid potentially embarrassing details uh, coming out in an upcoming trial. By the way, Twitter might have had uh, some embarrassing details for their part coming out in the trial. So this really uh, makes sense for both sides to agree to a deal here so they don't have to uh, go through the litigation and all the disclosure that that litigation would involve. As of late on Wednesday night, representatives for Musk and Twitter are still trying to hash out details 
of the proposal, again, Elon buying for the full $44 billion amount, even though Twitter is probably worth less now, including what will be required from both sides to stop this litigation, stop these court proceedings. And Twitter is probably looking for some guarantees here that Elon doesn't actually back out this time. All Twitter is saying right now is they have received Elon's offer and they plan to close the deal based on those original terms. Once this is finally closed, again, this could be a matter of months. Elon says that he wants to incorporate Twitter into what he's calling X or his everything app, an app that does everything. It remains to be seen what exactly that'll involve, uh, but he wants to basically uh, build something that is similar to WeChat in China, which is something that almost all Chinese people use. Uh, and it is how people message, it's how they shop. It's sort of like Amazon combined with Facebook, combined with Twitter, combined with a whole bunch of stuff. And Elon has a vision for something similar here in the US, his everything app, AKA X. We'll see, uh, first of all, if this Twitter deal goes through and what X starts to look like in the coming months and years. Okay, I'm going to end here with what I think is a bit of good news, especially if any of you use an Apple iPhone. Basically, Europe is forcing Apple and all major tech companies to use one type of cord for all products. That is the USB-C charger. This is the uh, skinnier version of the USB cord you might have seen on some of your products in uh, recent months and years. If you're already a user of a MacBook or an iPad, you would be familiar with the USB-C. Basically what the European Parliament is saying, and this is all countries in the European Union, so uh, about 30 countries, they're telling Apple, Stop with all the cords. Stop changing the cords. We're trying to simplify things for the citizens of our countries. Now, this proposal originally angered Apple when it came out in the spring and early summer. Apple said it's going to reduce innovation, forcing us into this one cord. But several tech sites have learned that Apple is actually testing the USB-C for future iPhones. Right now, if you have an iPhone, you use that lightning cable. That's that skinny little uh, rectangular cable. And what Europe is saying is, please, if you're using USB-C on your laptops and your iPads, please also use it for your phones. Most popular Android models also use this cord. Under the proposed rules, all phones and tablets sold in Europe will have to comply by the fall of 2024. So Apple has two years here. The goal here is to save consumers an estimated $250 million in continuing to buy different chargers and to cut down on environmental waste. You know, as you change those cables, you put them in a drawer somewhere and then you throw them away. And so what Europe is saying is like, let's cut down that environmental waste as well. So what does that mean here at home? Well, if Apple has to comply with this rule for Europe, conceivably, experts say, Apple will just go to one system globally. I should note that after the EU started talking about this, at least three U.S. senators are calling on the government here to adopt a common charging standard uh, here as well. Though what we've seen in recent years is that Europe really has been leading on privacy, uh, regulating tech, etc., and the U.S. has really been lingering uh, far, far behind Europe. This is another case of Europe getting ahead of the ball here, challenging tech companies to make things simpler for consumers. And it remains to be seen what it could mean here at home, but find it hard to believe that Apple would sell two sets of phones uh, globally. So let's keep our fingers crossed that the USB-C will be the last cord we'll be using for our uh, electronic products for a while. Okay, I want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. I'd love your feedback on how we're doing, on what I'm covering. Email me over at podcast at mo.news. A reminder to subscribe or follow the show on whatever app you're listening to us on. It'll make sure you don't miss a single episode. I have a special bonus episode coming out tomorrow in addition to the Daily News Podcast. We'll have a special bonus episode uh, really diving deep into the hurricane, lessons from the hurricane last week, and how climate change is and is not affecting the weather, what the media is getting wrong, what the media is overplaying, what the media is underplaying. I think you're going to find this conversation fascinating. 
I'll have more on that in a bonus podcast episode tomorrow. So be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss a single episode. And a reminder to leave us a review for the show. It'll ensure that we can continue to grow the show and help us move up the rankings on whatever app you're listening to us on. Two final things here. Please subscribe to the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com. It ensures that you will get deep dives into several subjects every week. And finally, if you don't follow me yet on Instagram, head over there at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H to follow Mo News latest and greatest 24-7 on Instagram. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow for two episodes, the daily as well as the bonus episode.